Sports Day. We thank you for your word read and for your word preached. And we pray that you would help us now, O oh God. Fill the, this preacher with your Holy Spirit that be able to preach with truth and power. And fill all of us listening with the Spirit as well. That we'd be able to not only listen to the words enter our ears, but that we would hear them and do your word for your glory, by your power. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. It really is a missed opportunity when we only understand our salvation as something that has happened in our past. A lot of times when we think of salvation or being saved, we are referring to what theologians and what the Bible itself calls justification. When God forgave you your sins, if you believe in Jesus Christ, and he has declared you ever not guilty before him, and sometimes we, we limit our understanding of salvation to just that. But praise God that there is actually even more salvation that the Lord works out in us. He is also working out in us what is called sanctification. This process of continuing to be saved, where he is making us less like our old selves and made more like Jesus Christ. That is also being saved by him, and it is 100% guaranteed for those who have been justified. Another aspect of salvation that is 100% guaranteed for those who have been justified and are being sanctified is that they will also be glorified. That one day, they will no longer have sin, they will no longer have suffering, they will have glorified, resurrected bodies to live in the place that God prepared for us. In that sense, we look at it as we will be saved one day. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. In justification, God saved us from the curse of the law. In sanctification, God continues to deliver us from the power of sin. Uh, and, and in glorification, he will save us finally from the effects of sin, the fall of this world. And so it is good for us to look at all aspects of God saving us and delight in his glorious truth. And that is our intent today. Remember in our last passage in Isaiah that was preached at the very last sermon of the year, you may remember it was pretty heavy. It was called Loving Warnings on New Year's Eve. Do you remember that? And one of the sisters approached me after the sermon and she said, how come you didn't leave me with any hope? Mea culpa, today's the day, sister. Okay, here comes the hope. And here is the, the, the ultimate main point of this sermon is the title of this sermon. And that is this, that God will see you through to the end. He's gonna see you through to the end. And our hope is that as we reflect on these passages from God to us, that in our times of deep sorrow and suffering, that we will cling on to him who has promised us this, okay? And we're gonna break this down into seven reminders from this passage that should encourage us that God will see us through to the end. And they are this in your outline in your bulletin. Number one, God saved you while you were yet a sinner. He will continue to keep you through your trials. He gave his only son for you. He is with you. He will gather his people from all over the world. 
He is the only God and Savior, and he will surely do it. Okay? So we're going to look at each of these one by one. There are seven of them, so they're going to go pretty quick today. We'll put on our good listening ears. Uh, only one of them are we going to park at for a while. So let's take a look at this first one here. Number one, God saved you while you were yet a sinner. And we don't have to look far to even see that in our passage in Isaiah 43, verse 1. Just the first two words, but now, right? You remember the passage from last time. Let me just remind you what we saw in God's word at the end of last year. God has some scathing words for the people of God. Hear you deaf. Look, you blind that you may see. You are my servant. You're my messenger, but you're blind. You're deaf. You're my dedicated one, but you are blind. I've shown you so many things You don't observe them. I have told you many things. You haven't heard them. And so God has placed them into discipline, right? The northern uh, kingdom of Israel was obliterated as a nation state and scattered among the other nations. The lower kingdom of Judah was, was taken into exile in Babylon, taken far from their home, far from what they perceived was the presence of God. And yet, Even though God disciplined them in that way, the last thing we saw in verse 25 is that they didn't understand that that's what God was doing. They they didn't see that this was all part of God's redemptive work for them out of love to discipline them, to make them feel the pain of their sin so they would be brought back. So as far as Judah and Israel goes, they don't offer much hope. But then the words, but now. But now. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. All of scripture is breathed out by God, and so we can say thus says the Lord in any part of scripture. And yet God has seen fit in certain places to say, thus says the Lord. Here is God's message for them and then to us as well. He is the Lord who created them. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. When it's talking about the creation and forming of Jacob and Israel, first remember that Jacob and Israel are the same people, right? Jacob is uh, whom God had chosen to continue on his promise that he had made first to Adam and Eve and then to Abraham. And then he renames Jacob Israel. And then his descendants, God's people, are then referred to as Israel. So we see Jacob and Israel. And he says, I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who formed you. And it's talking more than just the fact that he created them just like he creates everyone else. He created them as a people. He formed them as the nation of Israel, his people. And reminding them of that, he says this, fear not. Don't be afraid, even with this fiery trial that I am allowing you to go through to discipline you, fear not. Why? For I have redeemed you. I have purchased you. I have bought your freedom. That's what it means to be redeemed. What was the price for their freedom? We'll take a look at that in just a moment. But for right now, he's saying, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. It's it's not just a general salvation. He called them by name because he cares for them specifically. I've called you by name and you are mine. He calls the people 
his. Thank God. How does this apply to you in your exile? We are in this exile, if you will, as First Peter so beautifully paints for us, where it's not a 70-year exile. It is us living in this place that is not our home from the time that Christ established us as a people in Christ until he returns. And in this time, did Jesus not say, in this world you will have trouble? And just like this, this reminder to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah, should have encouraged them in their exile, how much should it also encourage us? He created us. He formed us. And again, we're not only talking about how he created us as humans. He created us as the church of God in Christ. He formed us as the people of God whom the Father gave to the Son and whom the Son is redeeming. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you belong to that people. You are true sons of Abraham and the promises belong to you. And God tells you this morning, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. He's called us by name. That reminds us also of Jesus as the good shepherd, that his sheep know him and he calls them by name. And God reminds you this morning, you are mine. You are his. But remember, this started with but now. You didn't deserve that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and your sins have been forgiven, you brought zero percent contribution to that all you brought actually uh, as it was luther i think or maybe jonathan edwards that you all you brought was the sin that made your salvation necessary who was that brothers was that one of those brothers right well it'll be in the orientation video in heaven right so (laughs) he's called us by name we are his despite the fact that we were sinners And how much should that give you confidence that he will save you till the very end? He bought you, he justified you when you didn't deserve it. Do you believe that he will keep you to the end even though you don't deserve it? That's what he said to them. That's what's being said to us. So God saved you while you were yet a sinner. A second reminder that should encourage us is that he will continue to keep you through your trials. He will continue to keep you through your trials. Read verse two with me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. So this, this phrase, when you pass through the waters, may well have uh, evoked in their minds the exodus. Right? Egypt, Pharaoh, His soldiers are bearing down on them at the Red Sea. All seems lost and God parts the sea for them and they walk right through it, right? When they pass through the waters, I will be with you. And so it's quite possible that that imagery is being evoked and yet it's it's being metaphorically used to talk about the trials that they would endure during their um, 70-year exile in Babylon. So when you go through those waters, when you go through those trials, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Think about rivers as as powerful bodies of water. 
If you step into the wrong river, you're going to be taken downstream. You're going to get injured and perhaps even killed. But Judah, when you go through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, verse 2, you shall not be burned. Do you think maybe this evoked the story, the account rather, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown into the fiery furnace that was heated seven times the heat that it usually is and they don't get burned at all? because of God's protection. And God is promising his people, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. You shall not be utterly destroyed by the trials that you're going through. In other words, this 70 year period of exile that you're going through, it's not gonna destroy you. I'm going to make sure of that. I'm going to keep you through all of the trials that you are enduring. And what about you and your exile today? What trials are you going through? What has been keeping you up at night? What has been giving you tears and anxiety and fear? God's reminder to you this morning is that he's going to keep you through your trials. Remember what Pastor Corey read at the beginning of this service today, nothing will separate you from his love. Nothing absolutely nothing that you're going through will separate you from his love. So praise the Lord, he will continue to keep you through your trials. Do you believe that today? Do you think that it's important to believe that in the midst of your trials? So God saved you while you were yet a sinner. He will continue to keep you through your trials. And number three, he gave his only son for you. He gave his only son for you. Read verses three and four with me. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. So the reason why God would be with them and that the rivers wouldn't overwhelm them, and that they wouldn't be burned or consumed, is that God is Yahweh, their God. He evokes the name that he gave to them, the, the covenant name of Yahweh, to remind them that I am your God. And he even emphasizes your God. Do you think there may be an emphasis on I am your God? Not just God in general, I am your God. It's likely that there's an emphasis there because remember that in verse 25 of chapter um, 42, no, I'm sorry. Ah, I'm sorry, verse 17 of chapter 42. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So you have these nations around Judah and Israel who are making up gods of their own liking that are satisfying their own passions. And guess what? Israel and Judah are also bowing down to those gods as well. And God reminds them here, I am your God. I am the one who created you. I am the one who formed you. I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel. He is the one that was set apart of Israel. And they didn't set him apart. He set himself apart for them. 
He didn't treat all of the other nations the way that he treated them. He picked them out and treated them as special. The Holy One of Israel, verse 3, your Savior. I am the one who is coming to save you. Now, how did he save him? How did he redeem them? He paid for them. Second part of verse 3. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Now, <clears throat> it's difficult to actually like pick out in history what may be being talked about here in terms of Egypt, Cush and Seba, powerful kingdoms of the time as being exchanged for them. And it, it's really not necessary to try to figure out what exactual, exactly historically is being talked about here because what's being highlighted is that God values them more than any other nation. He gives up, he would give up the powerful kingdom of Egypt for them. He would give up the, the powerful kingdoms of Cush and Seba in exchange for them. That's how much God valued them. Not because they were in and of themselves valuable, but that's because God chose to value them as such. He even says in verse four, because you are precious in my eyes. They were precious in his eyes. And they were not a precious people. If you look at it, the, the, the history of Israel and Judah, it is constant spiritual adultery, save for a remnant. They were constantly turning to and worshiping other gods and falling into all kinds of debauchery and sin. So they're not precious, right? They are precious as in they are valuable to him. Again, not because of anything they did, but because he chose them and placed a value on them that he would call them precious. And you're honored. You're, you're held to high esteem by me. And I love you. God loves them in spite of themselves. God loves them. And then he says, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. So you're a captive in Babylon. I'm, I'm doing prisoner exchanges to get you out of there. I'm, I'm paying for you at the cost of other great nations. You are worth more to me than Egypt, Cush, and Seba combined. You're precious to me, and I love you. Now, the bullet point that we put in the outline is he gave his only son for you. It doesn't mention his son in this passage. But the reason why is that God's covenant love that he's showing to his people is pointing forward to a greater reality. Our redemption, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, cost more than Egypt, it cost more than Seba, and it cost more than Cush. It cost God his only son. That's what it costs to ransom you because you are precious in his eyes. Again, you're not precious in his eyes because of anything in you. Don't think that God looked forward in history and said, oh, well, Ed's a pretty good guy. I'm going to save him. He saw how wicked I was and how wicked you were and how even you would live after he saved you and continue to sin against him. And he said, they're precious to me. I hold them to high esteem. I honor them. And I love you. 
I love you. For God so loved the world, or we could say, for God loved the world in this way, to this degree, in this manner, that he gave his only son for you. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he didn't just give men in return for you, he gave his only son. He didn't just give sinful peoples in exchange for your life, he gave his perfect and sinless son in exchange for your life. Now, what does that have to do with anything? The, the, the fact that he points this out about how valuable they are, how loved they are, is supposed to be an encouragement to them that he's gonna get them all the way through their exile. And the same is true for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. What else does God need to do to prove to you that he loves you and he's going to bring you through to the very end? What else does he have to do? He gave his only son for you, believer in Jesus Christ. So knowing that, believe that not only did he save you in the beginning, but he's going to get you through to the end. God saved you while you were yet a sinner. He will continue to keep you through your trials. He gave his only son for you. And number four, he is with you. He is with you. We'll just look at the first few words of verse five. Fear not, for I am with you. So we see this, this encouragement again, fear not. And earlier, the reason was, for I have redeemed you. And this time it's, for I am with you. I am with you, people of Judah in exile. I am with you, people of Israel scattered. Now this phrase, I am with you, isn't simply talking about God's physical presence. Because we could say that that's true in the sense that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And in that sense, he is with you in the same way as he is with everyone who didn't go to church today. Okay? But there's more that's being said here when he says, I am with you. It's not just I am with you in my omnipresence. I am with you in solidarity. I am with you in support of you. I am with you with my love for you. And how encouraging that that should have been to the people who were in exile. God was with them. We pray about our missionaries every Sunday and, and, and think about their situation right now. In a very real sense, they feel quite alone. They, they, they're far from their home church that they love. There is no strong local church, if any, where they're at right now. And so all they can really do on Sundays is gather as a family and try to encourage each other, even though they're all going through the same difficulties right now. And what keeps them going? God's promise to them, I am with you. Imagine that you are on the battlefield and across the horizon, you got your enemies with their swords and horses and they're they're shouting their battle cries and you look to your left and you see a cute little puppy looking at you. You say, well, that's, that's nice, but that's not very encouraging in this situation. You look to your other side, you got some four-year-old kid swinging his sword like, like a toy, but then you hear a voice from heaven say, fear not, I am with you. Now you might be thinking, I would prefer having a hundred mighty men on my left and a hundred mighty men on my right. That would make me feel better. But if that would make you feel better, then God's promise to you that he is with you. It's because you don't understand God. 
For if you have 200 mighty men going with you into battle, but you don't have God, you don't have nothing. You have no hope. But if all you have is a puppy and a toddler and God is with you, you have everything. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that God is with you? Do you hear the words of the Savior in giving the Great Commission, the, the, the largest task in history to make disciples of all nations? And do you hear the Savior say, and I am with you to the end of the age? And receive that to mean, wow, the captain of our salvation is with us. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Recognize this in your trials. Recognize this in your ongoing struggles with sin and doubt. The God of the universe and our Lord Jesus Christ is with you always. And he is on your side. And as Pastor Corey read, if God is for us, who can be against us? So he is with you. Number five, he will gather his people from all over the world. Here's where we'll park for a little bit. He's going to gather his people from all over the world. Read verses 27, I'm sorry, verses 5b through 7. Verses 5b through 7. So in other words, the second part of verse 5. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Okay? So he's going to bring their offspring, their children, the next generation of those who were in the exile. He was going to bring them from the east. From the west, he was going to gather them up. Again, if we try to think through, well, what nation was in the east? Where was Babylon located? We're going to get lost in the weeds. The point is, east, west, north, south, I am gathering my people back together is what he's saying. I'm going to bring their offspring from the east. From the west, I will gather them. In, in verse 6, I will say to the north, give up. In other words, give back my people. And I will say to the south, do not withhold. Do not withhold my people from me. And when God gives that command, by the way, do you think that north, south, east, and west listen? Yes, they do. Everyone. Oh, actually, I don't want to skip this. Verse 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. What, what an amazing love it is that God called them his sons and daughters. Despite all of their sin, despite all of their spiritual adultery and rampant idolatry, he says, those are my sons. Those are my daughters. Bring them. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. First John See what love the Father has had on us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Some people just say, we're all children of God, right? Wrong. If you're a child of God, it's because you were adopted and it cost a price to adopt you. And that price was the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. So the fact that he calls us his sons and daughters is an incredible, loving designation. Everyone, verse 7, who is called by my name, everyone who is associated with me, Yahweh, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, which we just discussed earlier. He actually made them Israel. 
He also has made us the church of God in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Now, thinking about this from an immediate uh, fulfillment, this was fulfilled in the way that God brought them out of exile. He brought them from where they were scattered in exile, brought them back to Jerusalem in order for them to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls and to continue in the covenant that he had made with them. But this is pointing forward again to another greater reality in Jesus Christ. Twofold. There is a spiritual aspect of God's gathering his people to himself. Which is why the Savior says that I, when I am lifted up, meaning the cross, will draw all people to myself. Okay? So that's what's happening. In Ephesians 2, it talks about how we as Gentiles were far off, but we have been brought near. Okay? So there's a spiritual gathering, and yet there will also be a final fulfillment of this in a physical gathering of his people in the end. Keep your finger in Isaiah 43, but let's look at Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, we'll just read verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is something that we look forward to when God will gather us to himself. Something that Second Thessalonians 2.1 describes as when Christ returns and gathers us to himself. Now, we, the pastors, have sought fit to take some time at this point in the sermon to have a warning to you against a terrible her error and heresy that is known as full preterism. Wh why do we have to talk about that? It's because it just seems like our, our church has several bouts with this heresy, and, and it's, it's come up again. And it's important to bring this up to you because in one, in one part of the New Testament, there were these people who were in error saying that the resurrection has already happened. And Paul says that it's upset the faith of many. Why does it upset the faith of many? Because when we sing, uh, and we will rise to meet the Lord, and sin and death will be destroyed, that causes us to sing hallelujah. And there are some who have been deceived by Satan who believe that's already happened. We're living in the new heaven and earth now. That's a problem, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we saw it fit to take some time in this sermon. This is where we're gonna park for a little bit to show you the error of this, okay? So I'm, I'm leaning heavily to, to help gather my thoughts on an article that was written by Kenneth Gentry. And he points out that there are essentially three major errors that full preterists make. And the first is that they deny a future bodily public second coming of Christ. They don't think he's coming back. They think he already came back in AD 70, okay? Well, how do they do that? I mean, we look at passages like 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. Feel free to turn there or tap there. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, which so encouragingly says this. 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Okay? So we, along with 2,000 years of Christians, have looked at this and said, wow, we cannot wait for that day. But these, these in error have said, no, that's, that's talking about AD 70, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And the reason why the hangup is there is because this is described by Jesus in Matthew 13. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Matthew 13, 39 through 40. And he ties this event with the end of the age. And what these people do is, is that they take the end of the age, whenever they see reference to that, to be talking about the end of the old covenant era, which was essentially when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Because at that point, they couldn't carry on the old covenant stipulations, okay? So they see everything that says end of the age as basically the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, okay? So the way that everybody else in Christianity for the last 2,000 years has understood this is that end of the age is talking about the end of right now when Christ returns visibly, publicly to deliver us. This age is the one that we're living in now. The age to come is the eternal state. Like in Matthew 12, 32, for example. In Matthew 12, 32, Jesus says that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven neither in this age nor in the age to come. I mean, that just as a natural reading is Jesus is saying, that's not gonna be forgiven in this world. It's not gonna be forgiven in all eternity. It would be, pointless to say that it's not going to be forgiven before AD 70 and neither is it going to be forgiven after AD 70 either. So a natural reading of that text would say that, that this age is the one that you and I are living in now. The age to come is when he returns and establishes the eternal state with us. But even if you do some exegetical gymnastics to say that's talking about AD 70, Luke 20 verses 34 through 35, this makes it very difficult. Because there, you have these Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, by the way, trying to trap Jesus and say, hey, if somebody's husband dies and they remarry, who are they going to be married to in the resurrection? This is supposed to be a trap for Jesus. And Jesus' explanation is that in this age, people get married. But in that age, they don't. So either you would have to say that we shouldn't be getting married post AD 70, or you'd have to acknowledge that that is talking about the future age, not something that we are living right now. So they deny a future bodily and public second coming of Christ. They would not say, come Lord Jesus. They would say that he already did. The second is that they deny a future bodily, physical resurrection of all men. They deny a future bodily resurrection of all men. And part of that is that they don't think that history is going to end at all. There is no going to be last day. It, this, this world, this is going to go on forever. 
which by the way, is a terrible thought. This world is riddled with sin and suffering and death. And under this worldview, sin and death will continue on for all eternity. That's not good. I don't like that. I hope you don't like that either, okay? They don't believe that history is going to end. But then also, they go to 1 Corinthians 15, which is like the central passage that, that points forward to this glorious reality that when Christ returns, any Christian who's dead is going to be resurrected. And anyone who is alive at the time is a Christian will be transformed and we will be imperishable. But they look at that passage and they point out in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, ah, it says spiritual body. Therefore, we're only going to have spirits. Okay? Well, first, Gentry, I think, helpfully points out that that word spiritual body has been in the New Testament for the last 2,000 years. And it never once, never once, discouraged the church from believing that the resurrection was going to be physical. Everyone from the earliest church till now, except for this small minority, has recognized a physical resurrection. But also, it ignores this larger argument that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15. There were people already in, in Corinth who were denying that there was any such thing as a future resurrection. And Paul says, if it's true that humans don't get resurrected, not even Christ was resurrected. And if Christ wasn't resurrected, you're dead in your sins and we don't have hope. And so there's no way, uh, unless there's really no way to actually get around it. The resurrection that's being talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 is physical. It is the reality that humans get resurrected or can be resurrected, that it's true that Christ was resurrected. And then he turns it around to say, just as Christ was resurrected, so will we who are in him in the future be resurrected. That is a great hope for us. Because right now, when we go to the Lord, even though we are enjoying ourselves, we are in a very real sense dead. But one day, we will be made alive again. And in that way, death will be destroyed. What death did to us will be reversed because we will be physically alive again. Now, what does spiritual body mean? There's, there's different ideas, but what it's really being talked about is a different degree of glory. Christ was clearly physically resurrected. They touched him. They watched him eat. They saw him physically ascend into heaven, and yet there was something different about Christ's body as well. The gospel, the, I'm sorry, yeah, the gospels point out to us that the, that the room that they were in was locked, and Jesus just appeared, right? So there's something different about the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, but it is physical. He ascended into heaven, and his physical body, as Pastor Rolo pointed out not too long ago, is able to dwell in the spiritual realm. Do you think we might need spiritual bodies to live in the place where heaven and earth are together? So, spiritual body. Not spirits, but physical body, okay? So they deny a future bodily physical resurrection of all men. And thirdly, they deny a future final public judgment of men. They don't see that there's going to be a judgment in the future, at least not in, a, uh, in like a one-time thing. And the reason why is because that Matthew 25 passage that I had read to you, it actually may benefit you to turn to Matthew 24 and 25. Listening for the Russells to end. 
Matthew 24 and 25. In Matthew 25, the passage that I read is part of what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. And to their credit, this Olivet Discourse is prompted by the question that's in Matthew 24, verse 2. He's looking at the temple and he says, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay? And so uh, it is reasonable to think that Jesus is going to answer their question, when will these things happen? When will this temple be destroyed? When will these buildings be torn down? Okay? So it's fair to actually say that some of this is, at least in part, going to be fulfilled right there in the first century. Because in Matthew 24, 34, it says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now there are some, because that is a difficult, that's a difficult verse, who will interpret it to say that this generation is referring to that generation in the future. I just don't think that's necessary. It, it is okay to say that, that the things that he's just described, this generation that was present with him at the time would not pass away before those things happened. But what the, the full preterists, by the way, that's a, that's a totally orthodox position called partial preterism. So if, you, if someone says they're a partial preterist, they're fine, okay, they're fine. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's when they deny that anything's gonna happen in the future, that's the problem. And the, the, the thing that full preterists miss is that this, all of it discourse is divided into two parts. Why? Because the disciples ask him two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Possibly the disciples were thinking that it would all happen all at once. But God answers this in two parts. So he ends this first part by saying, truly I say to you, this generation is not going to pass away, okay? But then in verse 36, he says this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay? So you're seeing a contrast. And when will these things take place? I'll tell you when these things will take place. All of these things will lead up to it, earthquakes, uh, suffering, and then this generation will not pass away until that happens. But on that day, on that day, not even the Son of Man knows. You see a stark contrast between the two. It's, clearly, Jesus knows when this first thing is going to happen. He tells them everything to look for. He guarantees that it's gonna be in that generation. But then he says on that day, not even I know. He's talking about in his human nature, right? And then it's also very different in the sense of what it's gonna be like. Before, with this destruction of the temple, here's all of these signs that you're gonna be looking for. But on that day, it's gonna come completely unexpectedly. There's gonna be eating and drinking, verse 38 marrying and giving in marriage. People are just gonna be working in the field and then one of them is gonna be gone, right? So again, this is a two-part explanation. One that's talking probably, at least in part or fully, about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which effectively ended the old covenant system. And then the other that is talking about something in the future. All of that is to say, stay away from full preterism. I wish it would stop bothering us. It's like it's the thorn in the flesh of this church. But God tells us his grace is sufficient for us. Amen? 
but stay away from it. Please don't, don't take this as a, now I'm gonna go on YouTube and look at what Pastor Ed was talking about. Stay away from it. If you wanna learn about it, talk to us as your pastors. Anyone who's doing theology by themselves behind YouTube is in danger, okay? So involve your pastors in this. And the reason why this is so important is because this is our great hope that God is gonna gather his people to himself. It's our great hope that we will conquer death by coming back to life by his power. It is our great hope that sin won't continue for eternity, that God is patient now, but one day he's gonna put it all to an end and not one person will die again after that. Don't take away my hope in that. No one, don't let anybody take your hope in that. So he's gonna gather his people all over the world. That's right, we're in Isaiah. Uh, Number six, he is the only God and Savior. He is the only God and Savior. Going back to Isaiah 43. And we'll read verses eight through 11. Bring out the people who are blind yet have ears, or yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no savior. So he's referring back to what we heard about the last Isaiah sermon, the people who are spiritually blind. They have physical eyes, they can see, but they are blind. They have ears, yes, but they are deaf. Bring them out, bring them out. All the nations gather together, or perhaps better rendered, let all the nations gather together. Let all the peoples assemble. So God is once again, as he's done in a previous passage, He's calling them out to prove him wrong and let their their gods prove something about themselves. All the other nations gather together. Who among them can declare this? This passage was written some 80 years before the, the Judahites were even taken, some 150 years before they were actually removed from exile. So this was written decades and decades before it actually happened. And God is saying, who else? Who else besides me can actually declare these things to happen? And who else besides me can show us the former things, things that have happened in the past and how they all tie together in all of this history? Who can do that? Let them bring their witnesses. Present your best evidence, other nations, you people who are following other gods, even my people who are following other gods, Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say, it is true. And of course, silence. Because there is no other God. There is no one else who can do what God does. And then he turns his attention back to his people and he says, you are my witnesses, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Israel, I have chosen you to be the people who has observed everything that I have done in history. 
I have told you about them. You have seen it with your very eyes. You are my witnesses. And I have selected you for that purpose, to be my servant, my chosen servant, so that you may know and believe me. What a privilege it is to be the ones selected to know and believe Yahweh. And not just that they would know and believe him, but so that they would understand that he is him. God is he. So the question is, who among them can declare this? Who can show us the former things? God can. God can tell them what's going to happen 80 years in the future and then 150 years in the future as well. I am he. Before me, no God was formed. There's no other God besides Yahweh that was there before him. There is no other God after Yahweh that was formed after him. He is the only God. And then he says, I, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. Israel and Judah, stop looking to these other gods. I am the only God. And I am your only savior. I am the only chance you got. Believe in me, know me, understand me. I am the Lord. Now, beautifully, in the New Testament, you'll you'll sometimes see Old Testament verses where Yahweh is in the original Hebrew, but it's translated into the Greek without his name, and it just says kurios, or Lord. That was tradition in order that they would not um, blaspheme the name of the Lord, okay? And the awesome thing about this is that some of those verses will be applied directly as if speaking about Jesus Christ. Because just as the Father is Yahweh, so is the Son, Yahweh. He is the Lord. And besides Jesus, there is no Savior. Why is that? Because no one else can save but God himself. And Jesus is God, the Son of God sent to save sinners like you and me. There is no other savior. As Acts 4 says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus can save us. He is, as Titus 1, 2 describes him, our God and savior, Jesus Christ. He is the only God and savior. Do you believe that our only God and savior is going to finally save us in the end? So God saved you while you were yet a sinner. He will continue to keep you through your trials. He gave his only son for you. He is with you. He will gather his people from all over the world. He is the only God and savior. And number seven, he will surely do it. He will surely do it. Read verses 12 and 13. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? That little triplet in verse 12 is wonderful. I declared and saved and proclaimed. He said he was gonna save them, then he saved them, and then he further proclaimed how he saved them. And this happened all through Israel's history, did it not? Did he not tell them that he was gonna take them out of Egypt? And then did he not take them out of Egypt? 
And then did he not further proclaim how he had taken them out of Egypt? And this happens throughout Israel's history. As they're taking the land of Canaan, God promises, he saves, and then he further proclaims. And that he did this when there was no strange God among you. Now, what this is probably talking about is, in those times in your history, where you weren't in this whole rampant, polytheistic idolatry, where you're serving Yahweh, yes, but you're also serving Asherah and Baal. But in that time when there was no strange God among you, you saw that I saved you. You heard that I was going to save you. You saw that I saved you. And then I explained to you that I saved you. I proclaimed it to you. There was no strange of God among you and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. You have seen Israel and Judah, how many times I have saved you. You are my witnesses and I am God. Then he says in verse 13, and I'm still God. And henceforth, I am he. I am still the same God who saved you in the past. I'm still that God. Do you not think that I'm going to save you now? That's the impact of this. There is none who can deliver from my hand. If God wills something, nobody can stop that from happening. I work and who can turn it back? When God does something, that is not reversible by anybody else. This is a strong guarantee for them that the salvation from the Babylonian exile that he's talking about is guaranteed. And it's an encouragement for us also. Because think about your justification, Christians, when you were declared not guilty and forgiven of your sins. Did not the Old Testament say that he was going to do that? And then did he not fulfill that in Christ and save you? And then did not he give you the New Testament to proclaim to you what he has done? Why would you doubt that he's gonna bring you through to the end? He is the same God who saved you. He is the same God who is saving you. And he is the same God who will save you in the very end. He will surely do it. Let's summarize. God saved you while you were yet a sinner. He will continue to keep you through your trials. He gave his only son for you. He is with you. He will gather his people from all over the world. He is the only God and savior and he will surely do it. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ and you are watching us revel in the beauty of the salvation that our God has given us in Christ and you're jealous, I have some good news for you. You can join us today. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And if you put your faith in him for your salvation and you place your complete trust in him, then you will also experience the salvation that we're talking about. And you will also be promised a continual and a final salvation in the end. Turn from your sins, friend, and trust in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, remember that God saved you while you were yet a sinner. And if God did that, why wouldn't he bring you to the very end? Remember that he is going to keep you through your deepest trials. And I know that you're going through some right now. I know that. He's going to keep you through all of it. 
I know that some of you are struggling with besetting sin and doubt. He's going to bring you and keep you through all of that if you would cling to him. He gave his only son for you, Christian. What more does he need to show you his love for you? He is with you to the end. He's going to come back and gather his people from all over the world. He is our only God. He is our savior and brothers and sisters in Christ. He will surely do it. Cling to this Lord. Cling to this God. He will see you through to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. Some of us are weak. Some of us are faint-hearted. And sometimes we doubt that you're going to do this. But you are still God. And in the same way that you have saved us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our abilities, and in spite of our weak faith, we recognize that you are the God who will keep us to the very end. We pray that we would cling to your promises, remembering who you are, and whose we have become. Give us peace, O God, in this. In Christ's name we pray, amen.